Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. While uh, uh, Dr. Kaplan is, uh, oh, he's successful. Okay, so welcome to all of you uh, to this continuing medical education conference on behalf of the Department of Medicine um, and to all of those who are connecting uh, to us by uh, VTEL. Before we get uh, started with our uh, presentation, uh, our um, a uh, healthy eating culinary program um, had uh, a topic today called whole grains, and the question that we asked was, how can you increase the flavor of food without eating too much salt? Last week we talked about salt and seasonings. Today's was whole grains. And uh, the winner of this uh, challenging question was uh, Marshall Ward, who answered, Add fresh herbs. A brilliant insight, and his uh, his prize is a bottle of turmeric. Congratulations! Wow. Learn how to use that. Thanks. And thanks to Karen, Karen Hike, and uh, and her team that uh, continues to do this wonderful uh, uh, this wonderful program. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, I'll introduce just briefly because uh, he has uh, much more important things to say than me reprising his long and illustrious uh, uh, list of accomplishments over his career. I do want to say that this is a very special day. In addition to Dr. Kaplan, we have the trifecta of the equinox, the summer, the, uh, the, the solar eclipse, and does anyone know the third? It's the supermoon, uh, where the moon is closest uh, at its perigee, uh, and uh, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> and now we have the extra added attraction of uh, Dr. Kaplan. So uh, Aaron is a graduate of Tufts University, where he got his uh, bachelor's in engineering science. He went on to uh, his medical degree at Bowman Gray, was a resident at Northwestern University, and then made his way to uh, Stanford, um, where he uh, did his cardiology uh, fellowship and interventional uh, uh, fellowship as well. He came to Dartmouth in 2002 after directing the interventional cardiology program at the VA Palo Alto uh, Health Center. And during the 1990s, um, he began a fruitful relationship with industry, uh, combining his creativity, entrepreneurship, and uh, cardiology uh, into a, a very productive uh, career, which continues. Um, he's been an active investigator in preclinical and clinical trials, uh, particularly focused on uh, devices, and is the, uh, I guess, the founding member and director of the 3D Symposium at Dartmouth. Uh, that's the Dartmouth uh, Device Development Symposium, which has been going on for uh, 12 years. Uh, he's uh, internationally recognized, uh, uh, lectures widely, both here and abroad, uh, and to say he's focused on revascularization is quite an understatement. Um, Aaron will uh, discuss his uh, uh, industry relationships, uh, and uh, let's get started, Aaron. Great. Thank you, John. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here. Um, We're not turning on prematurely. Yes. So, uh, anyway, it's a story I don't have time for. But um, one of the uh, subtexts of my talk is you learn by doing. And 
it's a good practice to uh, turn on your microphone and start talking uh, publicly. Uh, anyway, thank you, John, for uh, the kind introduction. I'm excited to be here uh, to talk with you about what I do um, when I'm not in the cath lab, um, and also uh, in my role as a uh, clinician inventor. Um, one of the less than hidden agenda here uh, is that this is part of an effort to uh, talk about the Clini Clinician Entrepreneur Fellowship, which we're kicking off this year, which is part of the uh, Synergy uh, program. And as you're hearing my talk, I want folks to uh, think about uh, this opportunity, which I'll talk about at the end, uh, which uh, provides protected time uh, for uh, faculty to pursue some of their own ideas and provide some structure around that. Uh, and that was one of my uh, motivators uh, to um, uh, doing today's um, grand rounds. So I appreciate this. Um, disclosures, and one of the things I'm going to talk about is the role of the clinician inventor and entrepreneur. And conflict of interest is a, is a crucial element uh, to that and figuring out how to navigate as a clinician. Uh, and it's an important part of what I do as being an active clinician and how to navigate uh, with uh, significant conflicts. The other problem about conflicts is, as many people know, for disclosure, my dad's a psychoanalyst, so when you talk about conflicts, it usually takes more than 50 minutes of the 50-minute um, hour available. Anyway, uh, first, uh, I'm a founder and director of Triton Medical. I'm going to talk about results from the uh, trial that we sponsored, and people need to uh, be aware of that. Uh, secondly, I get uh, research uh, support uh, from many uh, industry uh, sources. This is in large part because I'm involved in a lot of industry-sponsored uh, trials uh, here at Dartmouth. It also re reflects some of the support that the um, meeting uh, gets and also a fellowship that I'm trying to get support for. Uh, Off-label use, I want to reassure everyone that um, today I'll limit my conversation only to off-label use because if there was a label, uh, I probably wouldn't be here. Uh, finally, in some um, um, fora, you have to disclose that you're an interventional cardiologist because they're suspect about being that. I want to assure everyone that I am an unrepentant stentaholic uh, and very thoughtfully uh, delivered more than three meters of stent last year. Uh, but it's um, important uh, in that um, a lot of what I do is taking uh, observations from the cath lab um, and identifying problems that way. And again, just to reemphasize um, the uh, significant conflict surrounding my role at Triton. We can talk more about that later. Um, John gave my background, I'll just go through very uh, quickly, uh, but part of my whole career has been based on the fact that I started life as an engineer, uh, and I also had a biology uh, major as well, before they had formal biomedical engineering at Tufts, uh, and that has always kind of brought with me a kind of design and an engineering background talked about my active clinical academic role. Um, also, I've been very much involved in startups. I'll talk more about that uh, really from my experience when I was at Stanford. Uh, I was in-house at a venture capital firm. I have now more than 40 patents. I have more published papers and patents, which is a good thing. Uh, but um, I'm very active in this space. And that my kind of professional life is um, divided in three parts, like all. Uh, and, the third, and, and the third part is getting much more involved in regulatory policy. All of these three, I think, overlap um, and make for uh, what I uh, enjoy very much my uh, professional career. This is a picture of Andreas Grunzik. 
um, Grunzig was, in many ways, the prototype clinician inventor. Uh, he was the first um, person to perform uh, angioplasty um, and has a very interesting <coughs> background, starting in East Germany, was fixated by work that was really pioneered here in the U.S. by people like Charlie Dotter uh, with the idea of delivering um, barotrauma to arteries in order to open up focal stenoses. He started in the periphery, and um, the other thing is this was in the early 70s when um, thermopolymers, nylons, were beginning to understand how to use them and how to make uh, non-deformable uh, balloons when they were inflated. And he was really fixated with this. He went, he started work, made his way to Frankfurt, uh, went there, told his chief about his plans to go from the periphery to the coronaries, and like many good chiefs and chairs do, uh, he showed him the door and had to end up going down to Switzerland, where he actually worked very closely with a surgeon named Senning. Um, and one of the um, real hallmarks here is that you have to find the right center in which to do this, um, and that they're open uh, to it and to do it in a, a thoughtful manner. Um, what's not shown in this picture, and the other part of what I talk about, is that when he moved from Frankfurt uh, to Switzerland, he hooked up with an engineer named Hugo Schneider, who was working with catheters and brought an engineering dynamic to that, which was crucial to his ability to uh, pioneer. He was a real pioneer, um, and that <coughs> idea of a doc coming up with a, a construct and working with an engineer, uh, his work, uh, first angioplasty, was done in 1977. Um, the fruits of that yesterday, I did a um, bypass equivalent through the wrist and a patient. I was one of the reasons why I was late in between conferences is that that patient's aggravated. He can't go home. Um, wasn't able to go home last night and go home today. Uh, that this has really been a long 30 plus year um, um, journey that's really evolved. Closer to my own experience are two folks. One is Tom Fogarty, um, who really developed the first therapeutic catheter. Uh, and this happened when he was a medical student and um, was a scrub tech in the vascular surgery suite. And in those days, um, when you had an embolus to the common femoral artery, um, you lost pulses in the leg, they would do what's known as a pant leg incision. And they would make multiple incisions. They'd open the artery. Do I see clot? I pull it out. Is there still clot there? Oops. They sew it back up. They go more distally. Uh, and it was a more, a, a very inefficient way of doing it. Again, in Fogarty, uh, at that time, which was the early 60s, they were learning how to extrude metal and metal tubes, which were called hypotubes. That were some of the early needles that people used. Um, and that his, and he had some very long tubes with non-sharpened ends. And he um, took a finger condom and sutured it to the end of that um, and made a, uh, sealed it with nail polish uh, and made a fir uh, early um, a latex balloon I worked it up in a very sophisticated model, which was a red top tube, um, and more than in less than three or four months was in the clinic uh, with it. But um, Tom, who I've worked with and one of my mentors, began uh, identifying a construct for a problem uh, very early on, worked with engineers, or actually then in California, um, where, where was the metal tubes being extruded, uh, part of the uh, aerospace in industry in Southern California, uh, worked with those folks, and that this actually was an early uh, embolectomy catheter that actually had a um, polymer um, a shaft. 
Uh, but again, the doc, the bedside, seeing a problem, coming up with a construct, and also having some court awareness of new technology. The other mentor I'm going to um, give a shout out to is John Simpson, um, who really led kind of the Stanford angioplasty school, if you will. Uh, was a guy to do the first multi-vessel angioplasty uh, and went over to Switzerland to work with Glunzig um, um, uh, uh, in some of his early courses. Interestingly enough, he was the Department of Medicine and Department of Cardiology was very much against this and the uh, Norm Shumway, the head of CD surgery, was really the sponsor of that effort. Again, um, highlighting the importance of collaboration. Um, and John came back from that and the early Grunzig um, balloons were on a fixed wire and came up with an idea to be able to put a wire down and then track the catheters over the wire, which was novel at the time. Uh, and that really was the first workable uh, angioplasty balloon. I worked with John on another project called Perclose. Uh, and at that time, it was the late 80s, early 90s. We were now doing atherectomy in the coronary arteries, removing plaque through 10 French um, sheets often causing uh, tremendous uh, trauma to the femoral artery. Spent much of my fellowship uh, holding a groin. Um, and that when we had a complication, um, it was our ethic that we always had to go to the vascular, you know, we had to go into the case and be there because we had to monitor our patients because to monitor their coronary status. And um, at times I almost felt that the vascular surgeons were doing a punitive incision that was um, often uh, measured in centimeters um, that went um, vertically. They would divide the inguinal ligament. They get control of the proximal femoral artery, the, the distal, uh, put ligatures around. And uh, Simpson came back, and it was um, obviously frustrating. He says, all of that for one stitch. And he said, you know, if we can teach a catheter how to remove plaque, how to deliver barotrauma, that early stents, we certainly can teach a catheter how to deliver a stent, I mean a stitch, um, over a centimeter or so. And that was the idea behind Perclose. And, and I really had a ringside seat to this. It was tremendous um, with the, you know, be able to articulate a problem uh, and a construct uh, for that solution. And a picture I should have here is Enrique Klein, uh, who's a friend and was the engineer who really kind of brought that uh, into fruition. Um, so the first point I want to make is that um, these kind of pioneers and the role of the doc here, I think, is identifying the problem. And it's not as easy as you think. And here's Simpson identifying a problem, which is literally at the end of our fingertips. And a guy who spent, you know, many sleepless hours uh, holding, uh, you know, getting uh, femoral um, hemostasis. Boy, did that resound. The other thing that's interesting is both of these guys are in my kind of pantheon of greats um, for being able to reduce ideas to things that are now in clinical practice decades after they thought about it. But that when I talk with them, what you realize is that, A, this is not their only project. They've had many, and more of them have failed than have succeeded. And when I talk to them, uh, Fogarty doesn't want to talk about the, um, the embolectomy balloon. Simpson doesn't want to talk about um, their successes, they really want to talk about their failures and their current struggles. And why isn't that working? Um, and so that's always intriguing to me. The other thing is, by having the opportunity to work with these folks, and they don't always articulate it all that well, is they all have, they both have kind of developed their own process. 
um, and it's very iterative. Um, and um, it's been a, I've, I've learned a lot by watching them, and that's really the focus of my talk. So really, um, the idea is Eureka, you know, now what do I do? I actually, you know, I talked down at Tuck a lot. I, I used to call this Eureka, now what the Tuck do I do? But somehow they asked me to change that name, but I still like it, but I took it out of the slide. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's working on a process, and that's really what I want to talk about. So what do you need to go forward? You have an idea. Um, well, you need a plan. You need a team. I'll talk about that at the end. Uh, and you need resources, which is money. Um, and we'll talk about that. A great way to frame this is um, really, this is uh, taken from Jim Tobin, who was the former CEO of Boston Scientific. And I've modified this um, over the last year or couple of years. Um, but I really helped to frame it. And the first question that we have to deal with, and this is, I believe, the fundamental role of the physician, uh, is what is the unmet clinical need? Um, and it's not as easy as it sounds. For Simpson, it was the unmet clinical need with femoral access was how do we, um, are we able to obtain access, um, um, definitive hemostasis, um, without uh, interrupting the anticoagulation in a way that can be done easily in a sterile, sterile manner. And there's a, um, the engineers and the marketing people call this a, a specification. What does it have to do? Um, and, and working on that, and docs uh, typically come up with the idea, you know, here's a problem, and there are a lot of problems out there, uh, and here's a construct. The next thing we have your construct is, can it be built? Now, it has to be uh, built within the confines of at least um, um, two of three of Newton's laws, um, and also in the medical device space, um, it has to uh, be done typically with materials um, that uh, have been used before that are appropriate for use um, um, in clinical procedures. Um, and also, can it be built to the specification that's needed? So if you have an idea for a new stent, which I'll talk about, uh, and I said that we do this now through the wrist arteries, if I have a great idea, but it requires everyone to use larger sheets, it won't get used. So part of your need statement really needs to be very carefully honed. The next question is, you have this great idea, and you're working with your engineers, and things you know, morph a little bit. Will it do what you say it will do? Uh, and typically, that is defined in a, um, as a construct. Will it relieve stenosis? Um, and uh, how do you know that? And a lot of the time, a lot of the fun time is up here, um, but a lot of the real work is, well, does your device do what it says? And then, can you demonstrate that that actually makes a difference? Uh, and that this is really where the FDA comes in, where the clinical community comes in, um, and um, it's a large focus, especially uh, in the current environment, which is appropriate. The next... Um, question is, is your solution proprietary? And I'll talk a little bit about that. There are a lot of folks, especially in the academic world, a little bit uncomfortable about the patent process, which is um, somewhat antithetical to some of our academic mission, uh, but that this is part of the process because we're going to attract um, investment. You may not be interested in the uh, IP position, but the people investing uh, will be, and I'll talk more about that. Will anyone care enough to change practice? Now, I'm going to talk to you about a stent I've been working on for more than 10 years. And boy, I can't imagine that why everyone in this um, room is not 
fully fluent with all the issues that have gone on with bifurcation stenting, but you often lose your perspective. And the real question is when um, this, from a business and also from a resource utilization perspective, is that when you do what you say you're going to do, will it really impact um, the clinical environment? And then fundamentally that gets back, does it meet the unmet clinical need that you set out to solve? Now, a couple things about money guys. Um, and, you know, when I, I started life until I got derailed by some of this entrepreneurial activity, writing our, you know, grants that I was on our R01 track. And writing grants is not dissimilar here. Uh, but the granting agency is not the NHLBI in my case, uh, but uh, venture capitalists typically. But first of all, who are the money guys? This definition is quite uh, easy. Uh, this is really anyone who can write you a big check. Uh, and you need resources. And you need to, you know, some people say, you know, how do you, you deal with these money folks? You know, that's bad. And it's like the reality is you need to have resources. And I take the approach that, you know, you need to understand, you know, who you're dancing with. Uh, because my reality is that in order to move forward, I'm going to have to be able to attract resources. Uh, what about... Um, private investors. You can see the uh, word angel is crossed out. I fundamentally um, disagree with the um, nomenclature of calling these angel investors. They're investors. And investors invest money to get money returned and to make money. And uh, angel investors are just smaller investors than the big institutional investors. Angel investing is philanthropy. Now, I'm also raising money for a fellowship and um, the people who are putting money to endow that fellowship, those are angels. But the folks that are investing in companies um, are doing so to get return on their investment. Venture capitalists has been the uh, typical source for uh, early devices like this. Uh, this world is um, turned upside down by two factors. One is um, 2008 um, uh, meltdown of the financial markets. Uh, have hit this part of the financial world um, terribly. Uh, and also, the reality is that the medical device space in particular uh, has not had good returns in the last 10 years. Uh, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, and, um, and their returns, when they're good, are, are, are dwarfed by the um, Facebooks uh, out there. And that a lot of the venture community has just been subsumed by that. Uh, and there are also tax reasons for that. And it's interesting that uh, there really are very few U.S. firms um, doing this early investing. I'm involved with a company right now, and the uh, capital sources are primarily in Europe. Uh, this has a lot to do with tax um, policy here in the U.S. Uh, in Israel um, is another a source of the early high-risk um, uh, investors. Large companies actually are... Are, are quite concerned about the, quote, ecosystem and the impact of little work going on in the venture space and are trying to uh, provide uh, their own resources for this. But they're really not well um, developed for this. They're very much focused on quarterly, you know, hitting their quarterly numbers and working in a very predictable fashion. Uh, early development is anything but. Um, is this a Faustian bargain? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, and I think you need to proceed with your eyes wide open and be open about what these issues are. And the last is, do I really have to deal with them? And that's, that's easy. 
Um, the answer is um, yes, unless you know, your last name is Gates um, and you don't have those uh, issues. But I think that you need to uh, work with them. And uh, a lot of what they do is try to figure out what is the value of, your, of what you're doing, how much impact will it be. And there are many different ways of measuring value. I uh, do a lot of lecturing down to Tuck, and they have curves for everything. Uh, but here's a, a value curve over time. Um, a lot of people here um, you know, figure out how to measure value. Well, the, the venture capitalists typically do this with dollars. But at the end of the day, uh, if they're investment, they want to know over time, you um, put an investment here, you climb the curve. What is the big end market of this looks like? And now a lot of people say, oh, that's you know, um, crude, it's crass. But they you know, want to invest where things will have the most impact. And they spend a lot of time trying to figure that out and whether the idea will have this kind of terminal value um, because this gets back to the questions. If I do everything I say I do and I do it well, what kind of value do we see at the end of the day? And where the real focus is, is early on here. Um, and that's really where the early advice development goes on. Uh, and here's that curve. And here are the milestones um, that are really focused upon. And this really goes down to you know, Edison about you know, um, invention is 1% uh, inspiration and 99% perspiration. You have an idea. An idea actually doesn't have that much value. It's how you develop that. Uh, and as an entrepreneur, um, I need to think really hard how I put my resources to work to be able to understand what really will increase uh, the value and where are the real risk nodes. So you invest to say, oh, can I establish intellectual property? Can I get to a design that really does what it says it does? Can I get into the clinic? And this is where um, the value starts to increase um, and that there are a lot of hurdles along the way you get into the clinic and you find out it's not working. You, get, you come up against regulatory hurdles, and this is where uh, Triton is right now. And they're all interrelated. But to thinking this way, I think, is really important in terms of how much resources you take in and where is it going to uh, get you. And this is where the investors you know, want to invest on this portion of the curve because that's where they'll see the value of their investment increase. So adding to our list here, um, you have to add, for the investors, they want to know, can we make money? And there's a very important footnote here. When they say we make money, they mean them. You're not necessarily included. Their job is to make money for their investors. Um, and if you, if you can align with them, that's great, but that's not their job. And my, my feeling is, again, it's not right or wrong. This is, if you need to deal with them, you need to understand what motivates them. And in certain ways, more straightforward. Um, than some of the other areas I uh, deal with. So what, one of the things that keeps me up at night is you have all these ideas. You see I had more than 40 patents, so the Triton Stent is not my only uh, project that I've dealt with. But what really keeps me up at night is, you know, early on it's very interesting to work on new ideas, but crossing a Rubicon, and the real question is, should I be raising money for this, whether it's from private investors from corporate investors, from venture capitalists, because um, that is really crossing a Rubicon. Uh, and it's not just the money. Is that uh, Triton right now has 12 employees um, who have, are dedicating their careers to this, whose mortgages are based on this, and that you're going to the clinic and you're going to be putting patients at risk to develop your idea. And is it really you know, of that portion? 
allow you to do that. So this is really a very important question. Because the other thing is, the only thing worse than not um, raising money is raising money and having to be less than successful, which usually means um, being a failure. And as someone who's um, had been involved with companies that have been successful, uh, but also been involved with companies that have been wound down, it's a very painful thing to do. But getting back to what I said before in terms of talking about Simpson and Fogarty, everyone's had their failures. Uh, and um, you have to be very careful uh, when you kind of cross that Rubicon um, and really understand what, what's, what you're getting yourself into. So with that background, I want to talk about the uh, Triton side branch stent and kind of march down the questions and to see how I'm doing and to also use that as a way to uh, emphasize the points I made before. So what is the unmet clinical need? Uh, and this is why I'm in the lab. Uh, this is an angiogram of the right coronary artery coursing in the AV groove. Um, and what you'll see here is a discrete high-grade uh, stenosis. Um, and uh, we treat these now routinely. Uh, this um, was a patient who had an unstable anginal syndrome um, and uh, came into the hospital, um, had mildly elevated troponins, and uh, we proceeded. This is what I like to call a July, a late July, maybe early August lesion. That is a good fellow, uh, interventional fellow, uh, in early August should be able to treat this. Um, and that is not only a testament to how great our fellows are, but it's also a testament to how good the technology and our understanding how to use that technology has become uh, in, since 1977 when Grunzig did the first angioplasty. We are now able to treat these lesions with very predictable results. A lot of these patients, if they're not coming in with unstable angina, a lot of centers are being uh, sent home the same day and give a very predictable and durable result. Um, and uh, life would be good if blockages were all in straight uh, segments, but they're not. And actually, here's the result that we get with a, a stent, uh, and that we our expectation is that that really should uh, be very durable for this patient. So life would be good if all of our lesions looked like this, but they don't. Um, and here's a LAD diagonal lesion, which is the prime, was where the most probably most important bifurcations are. Um, at least the distal ones, and these kind of lesions are very tough to teach, to treat with straight stents. The purpose of Triton is to be able to bring the same reproducibility to these lesions as we have with straight lesions, and ultimately to get to the ultimate bifurcation, which is left main disease. Now, these are all uh, cases from Europe that have been treated with uh, Triton, uh, and they all, in order to get on the slide deck, had six-month um, clinical follow-up and are doing well. So the purpose of Triton is to be able to treat complex bifurcation lesions with the same ease as straight lesions. These are common. I don't have enough time to go through all the literature, but in recent, um, these are actually a little bit older trials, but this is, continues to be true. Actually, the number gets higher as our complexity increases that the number of patients or the, that uh, have bifurcation lesions the number of lesions that we treat are somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of our practice. Uh, it gets some very important definitions. It's not only the treating um, bifurcations, but bifurcations with arteries that are significantly large to warrant uh, specialized uh, therapy. 
can one be built? Um, and that this really gets back to can we build something that we think will meet the clinical need? Again, for this to be a solution that is used routinely, the solution has to um, embody a stent. It's a specialized stent that kind of looks, feels, and tastes like a regular stent. I can show it to some of my colleagues. They can interact with the kind of wires they use, the type of guides that they use, um, and um, can be used uh, easily um, and with appropriate material. So this is what the design looks like. Um, this is a slotted tube stent, very similar construction to all the other stents that are out there, but it's different in that it has three zones. The most distal zone uh, is, interestingly enough, called the side branch zone, and that resides in the side branch. Here's a schematic of a main vessel um, uh, which bifurcates uh, into a side branch, and this is a continuation of the main vessel. Um, the construction of this stent is very similar to the, the stents that are out there. It has the same uh, amount of metal coverage, the same radial strength as standard stents. Our technology really starts here at what we call the transition zone, which sits at the side branch origin. This has three conceptual panels that can um, flare and rotate within constraints in order to accommodate varying angles, varying differences diameter between side branch and main branch, and really to accommodate what is kind of a poorly defined uh, anatomy right at the origin. Um, these three panels uh, terminate in these sinusoidal sections, um, and the rest of this material is to work to keep these panels um, evenly distributed. Um, and they terminate what we call wedding bands uh, at the back in order to have this mounted on a standard uh, um, stent delivery balloon. One of the strengths of this um, project, and one of the cool things about it is that this really leveraged, uh, when we started this about 15 years of stent technology that was perfected to the extent that with one engineer that actually we could get on the whiteboard, um, draw an uh, a stent pattern that said DHMC in it. Um, Richard, who's the lead engineer, could put that in the right type of file. He would send it to Germany where most of these stents, uh, R&D, are cut, uh, then sent to the Netherlands where they're polished, then FedEx to California where they're mounted <coughs> on appropriate balloons. If we wanted sterile, they'd go back to the Netherlands. And if I was invited back in about three weeks, I could have a clinically approved uh, device of, uh, ready to be tested. The cool thing of that from an engineer, the ability to um, uh, come up with a design, to build it and test it is very efficient here. Um, and that, um, what, and this is um, the, I think it was the 33rd design that we worked on. Uh, and it's mounted on a standard balloon. One of the key issues of our design was that it didn't require rotational orientation, uh, which is very tough to do. Um, so it's ambivalent to how its rotational orientation is and is positioned like a standard balloon. There are standard marking systems. Uh, uh, de um, delineating the distal and proximal extent of the stent, and then also delineating the transition zone. Uh, when used, you put a, the distal marker here in the side branch and this in the main branch, and that ensures that you have the transition zone in an appropriate uh, fashion. Um, and that's what the, uh, the system looks like. And this is what it looks like on a benchtop model. I've got a new clicker that's supposed to work on this, but I haven't figured out how to use it yet, but 
This is um, a bench top model. Here's a side branch. Here's the stem being um, parked in the right place. <coughs> Notice the balloon inflates here first because there's less structure there. The balloon is now going to be deflated. Um, the balloon will be withdrawn. After that, the wire independently uh, will be withdrawn, keeping within the stent and advancing. This has been edited, and then we put a new balloon with a, a standard workhorse stent uh, on here, which is now deployed. And this really does is rebuilds the piranha in situ. Uh, you'll see at the end, our re-entering the side branch. Um, actually, with this balloon, we do it slightly different clinically, but I wanted to keep this short. Uh, and that this really melds us together as one assembly with the radial strength at the origin being derived by the stent-stent interaction. Um, this is, um, there's tremendous effort that goes into this design, but I think this shows that how it works conceptually. Um, why I like this model is that you can, it's a clamshell, you can take it out. There we go. And it shows that it's really one uh, assembly, uh, and that's very uh, important. Uh, and that's really how this uh, works. Uh, the way we've been testing it is having a medicated stent in the main branch with a bare metal triton uh, in the side branch. I'll talk more about that. So that's the basic concept. The next question is, will it do what it says it can do? Now, I don't have time today to go through all the extensive um, benchtop testing, which has now been pretty much codified uh, by uh, the FDA, uh, by the notified authorities in Europe and under something called ISO 9000. Uh, but how to qualify the sense is pretty straightforward, though there are some real specifics in how do you do the fatigue testing uh, in a bifurcation that uh, required a lot of work. But we were um, able to go to the clinic, um, and uh, for a lot of reasons we went to Europe, uh, but we went to best centers there, uh, represented by a uh, center outside of uh, Paris uh, that Thierry Lefebvre heads up, Eberhard Grube uh, outside of Frankfurt, and Patrice Soroyes. Um, who a professor uh, in Rotterdam really went to best-in-class uh, centers. Uh, this was a fully infrastructured um, study uh, with a DSMB to follow this. Um, and in the initial 30 patients, and the question here was, you know, can we deliver the stent? Can we get the kind of angiographic um, um, results that we want? Uh, and we can, can we do this um, with uh, re reasonable uh, success rates? Um, and that at the time that a 30-patient uh, study was enough to qualify us uh, for receiving a CT mark. Well, the results uh, turned out uh, very well. This is uh, talking about clinical outcomes. Um, and here's one of the cases I showed you, the baseline, the post-procedure, and the six-month uh, follow-up um, looking very good. There was real concern about using a drug-eluting stent and a bare metal stent here. Um, in terms of restenosis, restenosis is very high in bifurcations. Um, and that this, uh, and, and sophisticated analyses of this, something looking at something called late loss, which is shown here, show that the side branch uh, did, in fact, very well. This gave us um, approval to go to Europe, but also the, we thought the justification to start really studying this uh, more uh, clinically. And this is, goes under, can we show a difference? Um, and that what we did, um, was, and we can talk about different regulatory systems, but in a more permissive system, there's a lot more burden, I believe, on the company 
to study um, the uh, stents uh, after approval. We set up a centralized um, um, system using the uh, internet um, and um, with a um, goal of capturing 90% um, of our first thousand cases. Um, and that we're able to do that uh, in a, uh, with clinical follow-up. You have to be careful here about what are your data telling you and what are they, what are they not telling you. Um, and that um, what the data were able to tell us was give us an understanding of procedural success, um, tell us what percentage of patients came back for target lesion revascularization, and one of the biggest concerns was thrombosis. Um, as you may know, this area with drug-eluting stents, um, um, stent thrombosis is a huge issue, and how to handle dual antiplatelet. I know we make your lives difficult all the time in terms of management, but um, in this setting, um, it allowed us in our first thousand cases um, to see results that were clinically similar uh, to what uh, we had achieved uh, in our first in man. And this allowed us to uh, go forward and to commercialize this in Europe, which I'll talk about in a bit. It also gave us um, the um, uh, courage to go forward with the FDA uh, to work on a trial that would meet FDA standards, uh, which, showed, which needs to show a clinical um, um, impact um, as well as angiographic impact. Uh, this was a huge undertaking, the largest bifurcation study ever done. I'll talk about that. It was recently published in Jack earlier uh, this year, um, and that it was presented by Marty Leon, who was the PI, who's uh, head of the um, Cardiovascular Research Foundation uh, in New York and also a uh, professor at Columbia, uh, and um, he presented these data. This was 704 patient randomized trial um, with a primary endpoint of target vessel failure. Uh, which is a composite of death, um, MI, we'll talk about MI definitions in a moment, um, and revascularization. Um, at nine months, there was a sub-study angiographically to look at percent diameter stenosis in the side branch. We also looked at an IBIS, intravascular ultrasound study, to be able to surveil for stent fracture, which is a uh, big concern, particularly at the agency. Um, this was done over a two-year period at 63 centers uh, in the U.S. and Europe and cost more than $20 million to run. The results were presented last year, and what you see here is that we missed our endpoint. There was an excess of target failure endpoints uh, in the Triton arm when compared to provisional. Um, running one of these studies, the first time I did it, you're seeing all these data, you really don't know what's happening, and they put it in the computer, and about a minute later, you get your report card back. Um, I was not happy, um, but these are the data, um, and understanding the data um, is of key importance. When you looked at the endpoint, and again, target vessel failure, uh, composite of cardiac deaths, thankfully there were none, and it was driven primarily by target vessel MI. And the definition there were threefold. One was elevation of CPK <laughs> to three times baseline. Um, and a lot of these were uh, clinically, um, you know, these were patients. They went back to the sites. The sites often were not even aware that those patients had had that endpoint. Uh, but importantly, there were a small number of, of uh, large endpoints uh, that are very important. And, and similar. This was powered for non-inferiority. We clearly missed that. 
On the angiographic side, we showed a, a significant reduction in present diameter stenosis, but to be open about it, we were a little bit, we were disappointed. This is less than what we had anticipated before. So this made for um, um, some very difficult board meetings, I can tell you, but the most important thing here is about the data. The data set is very robust. And what we really found out when we looked at this for reasons that are now clear, but one of the issues, what I've learned here, what, what I learned about this is that this was the first time a trial was run like this for this kind of infrastructure. And we found out, and here's a histogram of the frequency, and here's um, the side branch diameter. And this was for a stent mounted on a 2.5 delivery system that more than half of our patients had inappropriately um, small arteries that were outside of the pre-specified window. 225 here is the angiographic core lab QCA measurement of it as opposed to the visual estimate um, at the uh, sites. And what we've now, as we've gone back, so we've had uh, in 60% of our patients, um, we were comparing uh, Triton, which was mounted on a 25 delivery system, to arteries that were um, by pre-specified criteria too small. Um, and that we were comparing them to appropriately sized balloons. The comparator was angioplasty, which is the current standard for this type of a lesion. When we went back and we looked at that in the intended population, we in fact saw the results we had anticipated with a reduction in target vessel failure, target vessel MI, uh, and a small reduction in clinically driven TVR. A way of thinking about this in larger vessels, uh, it works. Um, and in smaller vessels, not only doesn't work, it may cause harm. And that actually is consistent with the literature that we know that bare metal stents and smaller arteries don't do as well uh, for a number of reasons. So we went back to the agency, uh, and then the other thing is that we looked at the angiographic endpoints, and we showed a, um, a reduction, uh, in, a large reduction in side branch stenosis. We showed a reduction, we did not show a reduction in binary stenosis because our numbers were relatively small in terms of sub-study. Uh, um, but that these data we went back uh, to the agency with. The other important thing is that, and it's interesting, one of the real drivers behind this technology is again in the clinic, um, you get the same reproducible results. That means our arteries going down. When a side, large side branch goes down in the cath lab, it can be an unstable dynamic, and that, there were, that happened about 5.5% of the time and we nearly eliminated that with our stenting, again, given the reproducibility, uh, though that was not a primary uh, endpoint. We went to uh, FDA, showed them these data, um, and that we are now in a study um, that's a single-arm study that shows, one, that the, and we believe that the randomization dynamic kind of drove things to smaller arteries. That is, in smaller arteries, um, the docs were at much more equipoise. At larger arteries, there are a lot of docs said, you know, I just don't want to put my patients with larger arteries into your study, Aaron, because I know I'm going to put a second stent in there. And so there was a reluctance in a randomized dynamic to put in larger arteries. In fact, in our European centers, a lot of them were treating those patients with Triton already, um, and that there was much more equipoise at smaller. So the purpose of the current study that's ongoing is to show that we can recruit the appropriate size um, patients with appropriate um, lesions. and that we get similar results, and that's ongoing. Uh, and this is what that looks like, um, and it's a 130-patient study, and we have 70, I think, six patients into it. 
75 as of last night. Is our, so I'm going to switch um, gears again. Um, and now, is this a uh, proprietary solution? Um, a couple, I'm running a little bit late, um, but uh, a couple of points here. Um, a, a lot of times people come and say, young Aaron, I respect or something, don't respect what I do because of my business uh, interest. But they say, look, I'm, I just want to publish my idea, um, and I really care about the IP, um, and that um, you know, it's not important to me. Um, two thoughts on that. <clears throat> One is, depending on what institution you're at, actually may not be your decision. Um, secondly is that if you really want to get the resources for this, the people investing will be very much focused on this, because they don't want to develop something that they won't be able to get returns from. The third point is that, and I think this is where one, one of the problems a lot of the um, um, university offices are, is um, picking your um, IP attorney is key. Um, the person we have, Gerard von Hoffman, is at a firm in California who I knew, but you need someone who really knows the space, who doesn't have conflicts. And early on, you have to really work with them. We've had six patents around this design, and here's the first one. And you'll notice the cartoon here. You see a schematic that, doesn't, that looks reminiscent, but it, the wedding band aspect of this wasn't added. That was in patent number three and four. And that, that's probably what's enabling. So there are a couple of things, and I think a lot of, when I was in the house at a venture firm, every day we would get patents and patent applications, and people confuse that with you know, development. Uh, it takes about five years to have your patent prosecuted today. And the other thing, unlike in biotech, where the molecules um, is usually the driver, um, here it's often secondary design features what gives you your protection. Um, so, um, and do we know that we have good protection? Um, we really won't know until it's interesting. Ironically enough, been sued. Um, Simpson said, Aaron, I hope you get sued. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, if you're not addressing a big market, no one's going to care. But if you are, someone will sue you, and you don't really know if you have good protection until you get to appellate review. Hopefully I'll get sued, I guess. Will anyone care? Um, we have now... Um, doing a very focused, commercialized effort uh, in Europe. Um, we've had more than uh, 10,000 implants. Um, we have CE Mark. There's a lot of interest in Europe doing uh, left main uh, procedures. Um, and uh, why we do this in Europe and focus is that from a business perspective, recall that our stent is put in with a main vessel stent. We don't make main vessel stents. And this is really to prove to acquirers that this is, in fact, commercializable. Um, which we believe uh, it is, um, and um, we're doing very well. One of the problems, however, people know all the economic crises in Europe, the falling of the dollar, a lot of issues there. But our purpose here is to really, we have about um, two dozen um, sites that are using this regularly, understanding how they're using it and how it's impacting their care. One of the things that we are not taught uh, in medicine is how to build a team, how to work collaboratively. And by we, this is particularly poorly taught among um, surgeons and interventionists. Um, I am very, I believe, Socratic, um, and I believe a good teacher, everyone believes they are, uh, with our fellows, but I'm not all that collaborative. I'm really teaching them how I want to do things. Um, we did, I did a ca this case yesterday. I have a way of holding the wire. I can explain why I like to hold the wire. And um, the truth is, that on my own, I probably can do things more efficiently. Um, the fellows do teach me a lot, 
but um, it's not a collaborative dynamic. And in medicine, we're not taught really how to collaborate well. Uh, and one of the things that I've learned from having foot in both the business world and the clinical world is hopefully to learn some of that. And so the first thing I did was to partner with uh, Dan Cole, who is a, a good friend, um, who uh, no one confuses us, um, despite our BSAs uh, being similar, um, but that he's a former naval aviator, tough uh, business guy, um, who really, it took me a while to figure out that when he said, Aaron, you're thinking like a cardiologist, usually you know, that's a compliment. That was not a compliment to Dan. Um, and that really bringing a kind of a business perspective. Very quickly, we brought on Richard Davis, um, who's an engineer who had worked at Cordis, where they developed the first uh, stents. Um, and you know, when people said, Aaron, you know, you engineering school, why don't you take off time and, and design this thing? Well, I, I know that I don't know this, and that he's not there, he's not my fellow, even though he looks like younger than me. Uh, he brings real competency that I don't have. And learning as a doc to interact that way is key. Once we were in the Europe, uh, we recruited Olivier Delport, um, who has dual US-Belgian um, citizenship and had worked at Guidant, and he's really has run the European um, operation until just recently. Um, as we got into the clinic, our, our FDA, we recruited Doug Ferguson, uh, who's in Boston and worked at Boston Scientific. Just like with the development of the stent, with such a small effort, we've been able to do this in a very geographically disparate manner. Um, and bringing in and pulling from talent from all across the country in Europe. We then brought our back uh, office headquarters are down in North Carolina, where the first, keyword first CEO was, um, and we headed things up there. Um, Brett uh, now heads that up, he's our CFO. Uh, Lynn Lack, who runs the clinical um, uh, study, she's out of um, Med uh, Minneapolis, where a lot of the medical device companies are. Our early investor on Health Lot, Rick Anderson, formerly headed up the Cordis organization at J&J. &J. And our second CEO, um, Sean, um, worked very closely with a very talented manager to keep this all together. I only have a few minutes left, so how am I doing? Big questions. What is the unmet clinical need? We worked very hard to find that. Can one be built? Um, I believe the answer to that is clearly yes. Will it do what we say it does? Can we get it there with um, uh, reasonable uh, procedural success? Yes. Does it make the kind of difference we hope it will? And I think that jury is still out on that. Um, is it um, proprietary? We think so, and hopefully we'll be able to prove that. Will anyone care enough? Uh, we're seeing adoption in Europe, primarily on procedural basis. And can the investors make money on it? They think they can. Uh, but for me, will it make the unmet need? And I think we are, but we, are, we need to develop more data. I have about four more minutes, and I want to end with this, and I'll take questions. And that the whole purpose of my talk was to set up the Clinical Entrepreneur Fellowship. Uh, this has been funded by Synergy, and we're in our inaugural year. And the idea is, Eureka, what do you do? Well, you try to get a fellowship to get time to do this. The um, purpose of this, and there was announced back in January about this, the purpose of the fellowship is to help faculty develop their own ideas, but also develop an environment here that's conducive uh, to doing so. Um, and uh, really, you'll learn by doing, um, and that um, the hope is to 
have uh, some of our faculty develop their own ideas and share their journey as I have. The idea here is that we've um, um, provided for the CTSA to provide one day a week protected time with the concept of you giving your pager to your chief, who as your chief will give it to someone else, um, and go to one of the incubation spaces on campus, and to try to figure out whether your idea is worthy or not, and really to drive a go, no-go decision in terms of, of funding. Um, but also with the idea of developing an environment here, the real end product um, is to come back a year later and saying, you know, this happened by application spend, and why it failed, or what are the challenges ahead, and to learn from that. Um, we're in January, and a few more minutes, um, when it was announced, I'm giving talks like this to socialize it. We asked for submissions in April. We're a little bit behind here. It took me a while to get on the calendar here, um, where there'll be a review uh, by a panel at Dark Adventures. It'll be in the order of pitch. This is not a large um, uh, uh, effort like for a grant. Um, we'll announce our award in June with the idea of being operational in October. Um, there will be a board, very much like my venture back board, which will be a member of three members, one from the Dartmouth community, who is looking out for Dartmouth interests in addition to providing oversight, someone by definition, presumably industry expert from outside the Dartmouth community, and a third person who fills in the experience gap of these two. Again, very much like the board um, I report to Triton, uh, and they have the ability to um, provide advice and oversight, but also recommend withdrawal support is not the type of movement um, required. Um, again, deliverables would be giving grand rounds a year later. And uh, if you're interested, um, let me know. Make an appointment uh, with my assistant, Carrie, and I'll give you more information. And with two minutes to go, I thank you. Running over a little bit, um, question. Just out of curiosity, why don't you think the time is used and not drug related? It's a key question. Um, there are two answers to that. The practical answer is putting drug on is not trivial event and would add a large uh, portion to the uh, development cycle. Uh, and when we got started, um, it was almost prohibitive to do. Um, and um, so it's really, this is a stepping stone. The anticipation is that it will eventually get drugged on it. Uh, and the other issue here is that um, we're goal is to show that we're developing a best-in-class uh, technology and that, you know, a lot of people say, Aaron, you know, you can get now Paclopaxel, which is one of the first drugs to put on, but the polymers, uh, had we done that, you know, no one's using that now. So this is something that really needs to be done in concert with someone making their own drug-eluting stent. It's not all that obvious that we didn't need uh, drug, um, and maybe now a little more have you seen some of the data, but one of the big issues about putting drug on this was thrombosis, and our thrombosis signal has been very similar, I mean, uh, to our controls uh, in the randomized trial uh, in an area that's had a very high, not only has had a high rate of thrombosis, but if you get thrombosis in an artery in a proximal AD, uh, the implications are huge. So um, early on, the reasons we didn't go, one, we had to kind of walk before we ran. Uh, B, there are a lot of concerns about two layers of uh, stent 
uh, in the proximal LAD in the case that we see here. Um, and um, so for both of those reasons. And in one of your slides, you showed a, a phrase that said design uh, freeze. Yeah. I was curious whether, when you talk about iterative process, do you freeze the design until you test it thoroughly and then change it, or do you change it as you test it? Um, design freeze, as you picked up, is a very specific term um, of art uh, for the engineers. It's what you go through, and there are a number of design freezes or design reviews um, that um, kind of codify this iterative dynamic that you talked about. Prior to going forward with, um, so the process here, you work on your design, you set up your specification, which is a large, almost legal-like document that's saying it has to be able to have this radial strength, have to have all these angles, have to be able to show that we can sterilize it, and it has to show that it can go through the equivalent of 10 years of systoles without fracturing, you do all that stuff, and the design freeze, you have all the constituent groups that then sign off and then freeze it, and then you build your stent to the design as specified by the design freeze, and only then can you really go into the clinic. And so, it's, so it is a term of art that has very specific, uh, and it's defined by something called your ISO 9000, which is your um, kind of rules of the game that's specific to each organization. Arnie? Yeah, I think you're certainly to be congratulated for doing a large clinical trial early on in the course of this story of your stent, because this is not typical of the whole world of angioplasty, which, as you point out, is 40 years old. Yeah. And I don't know if there really are any large trials that have shown long-term clinical benefit. Of, of what? I, I would just say one other thing, and that is that my understanding of trial methodology is that if you miss your primary endpoint, all secondary endpoints are hypothesis-generating, but not hypothesis-testing. So that you, these P's that you show for the secondary endpoints are really not valid if you've used up all of your alpha on the, on the primary endpoint and have missed it. Right. Well, actually, the powering of the study had more power, so we, A, could do that. Um, B, it is hypothesis generating, hence why we need to go and do a confirmatory uh, trial. Uh, in terms of um, this is something that, you know, there's a lot of argument that, you know, the, we're 40 years into angioplasty. I mean, there are trials that have shown tremendous benefit and life preservation primarily in acute infarct space uh, for uh, stenting in the current syntax trial. Um, story um, is evolving, showing that as well. So um, I think there are a lot of data. Um, this is earlier on, and some people have kind of taken us to task saying, look, you know, is this really, um, if this is really about uh, procedural issues, procedural issues that we got hung up on were CPKs, which are now not shown to have, within the procedure at the level we set, are not really prognostic. You know, people say, well, you know, you know, should you have done that that early? I think we found out a lot. It's driven. I think that um, there is, you know, figuring out where this gets used. Um, the negative part about this, the amount of resources, there's been about $37.54 million uh, put into this. Uh, and that's one reason that it's kind of ground. A lot of these things are not happening. So the investment versus the return uh, has to make sense. But I think that we're, we define a population where there is benefit, uh, and a lot of that benefit is uh, procedural um, in terms of getting people through um, procedures uh, in a lot easier fashion. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you so much.